0: So the title of uh, Study 7 in this Understanding Paul series is God in Our Lives. God in Our Lives. Speaking about salvation, Paul declares in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now all the references I have tried to put on the outline sheet that you've got, um, so you can take them away with you and go through them again at your leisure if you wish to do so. So that was Galatians 2.20. Now it's clear from Paul's teaching that this experience is not just confined to him. It applies to all believers who have accepted Christ as their saviour and are now at peace with God, as he puts it in writing to the Romans, chapter 5 and verse 1. And in study 6 that we did last time, we looked at the way of salvation in some detail. So Paul explains, first of all, what it actually means to have God in our lives. And secondly, what our response should be To this wonderful truth, because it is a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's a mind blowing truth. Christ lives in me. God is in our lives by his Spirit. So let's begin by exploring what it means to have God in our lives. What it means to have God in our lives. Well, firstly, it means that we are alive to God. We are alive. To God, Paul tells us that it means, looking at Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, that we are now, and I quote, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And writing to the Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, he says, and I quote, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins. Now, you'll also find that in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5. However, important point to notice, although our sins have been forgiven, praise God for that, and we have new life in Christ, fantastic, there are still times, aren't there? Well, there are in my life anyway, when we fail to act like new creations in Christ. Now, this is because we're in a process. We're in the process of being sanctified, which is a posh word which simply means becoming more holy, becoming more godly and becoming more loving. This process of sanctification is going on in our lives day by day. And Paul speaks of his own personal struggle. He makes no claim to have arrived, you know, that everything's okay with me, I have been sanctified, and that's it. No, he struggles. And I'm glad he did. And I'm glad he told me he did, because that makes me feel a whole lot better. I don't know about you, but this wasn't just something that I struggle with, but it's something that he struggled with too, and we all do. So Paul speaks of his own personal struggle. to to live as he knows he should. And in Romans 7, verses 15 and 19, this is what he says, and I quote, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So there's the struggle that I think we all recognise. But here's a very important point. Paul doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, oh, it's just too bad then, I just can't continue this struggle. It's too much. He does not give in to despair. And he affirms that God is in his life by his spirit and will enable him to be triumphant. So down at verse 25 of Romans 7 we read, and I quote, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So firstly, to have God in our lives, it means that we are alive to God. Secondly, having God in our lives means that we have life through the Spirit. We have life through the Spirit. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with, with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. There you'll find that Paul goes on to rejoice And to enthuse about what it means to have God's Spirit living in us. Firstly, in verses 1 to 4 of Romans 8, Paul tells us that it means that believers are no longer living under God's condemnation. We are no longer living. Under God's condemnation. We are free from guilt and we are free from the consequences of sin, and sin no longer has any power over us. Look at verse 2 and I quote, Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, this means that the law is no longer our guide. The Spirit is now our guide. And the Spirit, who is God, rather than a mere code book of conduct, which is what the law was, is a far better guide and resource than the law ever was. Why? Because the Spirit offers guidance which is specific. Specific to the situation we are in and is therefore more precise and more explicit. The Spirit is also about relationship rather than rules. He brings us into a relationship with God, whereas the law can only lay down the standard expected and warn of the consequences of disobedience. Now both of them, the law and the Spirit, point out the sin in our lives. But the Spirit strengthens us to overcome it, whereas the law can only condemn us for it. And we looked at that in our previous study, Study 6. The Spirit acts as our personal guide and influence, whereas the law is impersonal. The law is written to guide everybody and he's never specific to each person. The Spirit as our guide, you see the difference? His guidance is personal rather than impersonal. So having God in our lives means that we're now living under the Spirit's guidance as he walks with us and is in us day by day. Secondly in this passage, Paul tells us, that having life through the Spirit means that believers are now living under a new obligation. We are now living under a new obligation. So look down at verses 12 and 13. And I quote, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now then, there are two aspects to this obligation. Firstly, to live for Christ and not for ourselves. That's what the sinful nature is referring to. So, Instead of that phrase, the sinful nature, you could put me, I suppose, or you could put us. The second aspect to this obligation is that we are to live according to the Spirit, walking closely with Him and allowing Him to guide us, so that we do and say the right thing, we make the right decision, we think the appropriate thoughts, and so on. So in verse 5, we read, and I'm quoting, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So, in contrast to the worldly person, the believer does not follow what the sinful nature dictates, instead, our minds are to be fixed on the things of the Spirit, asking ourselves, What does God want? What pleases Him? rather than, What do I want? What pleases me? Being alive to God means that we should be responsive to the things of the Spirit. It means that we should be submissive to God and obedient to To his commands. Our lifestyles are to be completely different because we now live in the realm of the Spirit. So, in verse 9, Paul says, and I quote, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And as we fulfil our new obligation, the Spirit will enable us to overcome sin and temptation and defeat the sinful nature. Paul explains that the key, the key to being successful in this, is to be, quote, filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Filled with the Spirit, or more accurately, To keep on being filled with the Spirit. That's what the verb there means. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And to get this across, Paul contrasts the lifestyles of the drunkard on the one hand and the Spirit-filled believer on the other, saying, and I quote, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with The spirit. Now, as we all know, someone who's drunk is no longer in control of themselves. You've seen it, I've seen it. The drink is in control of their behaviour and actions. They are clearly what we call under the influence. Under the influence. Similarly, being filled with the spirit means that he becomes the dominant influence in our lives and the evidence of this being so is that our lives are characterized by worship by thanksgiving and by loving relationships and paul points that out to us in Ephesians 5:19 and 20 the two verses that follow his exhortation to us to keep on being filled with the spirit so that's what it means to unpack this New obligation. That's what it's all about. Thirdly, Paul tells us that it means that believers have a glorious future. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I quote, But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive Because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So, although our body will die, we will have eternal life because God has cleansed us from sin and made us righteous in his sight. And we explored that in study six last time. Paul teaches that because the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us, one day our mortal bodies will be redeemed and transformed into his likeness and we will be with him forever. I can't think of a more glorious future than that. I don't know about you. Being with him forever. And of course, when we get to the last study in the series, this time next year, study 14, we'll be looking at that whole aspect. Fourthly in this section, Paul tells us that it means that the believer is now a son of God adopted into his family. So looking at verses 14 to 15. And I quote, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You received the Spirit of Sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now he uses this picture of adoption, uh, if you look down at verse 23, to illustrate our new relationship with God. And in the last study, study six, we went into this in some depth with an explanation of it and the background to it. Paul explains that having the Spirit of God living in us is evidence that we are saved. So in verse 16 he says, and I quote, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That we are God's children. We're adopted into his family. But for Paul, it's more than that. It's also a pledge. It's a pledge of our future inheritance. Look at verse 23. And I quote We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we remember from last time that this use of the word sons is about status, it's not about gender. Paul uses the term firstfruits here in the sense of a down payment on an inheritance yet to come in the future. So the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us is a down payment, a guarantee of an inheritance yet to come in the future. So in 2 Corinthians 1.22 we read, and I quote, He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And you get a similar flavour in Ephesians 1.13-14. And we explore the significance of the seal, if you remember, in study 6. So, that's about our future and it's about our family. And fifthly, Paul tells us that to have life in the Spirit means that the Spirit helps believers, quote, in our weakness. We're looking down at verses 26 to 27 of Romans 8 now. And this is given with specific reference to prayer. To prayer. And I quote, the Spirit helps us, In our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will." Now, interestingly, the word that's translated helps here, Spirit helps us, is only used at one other point in the New Testament. And that point is at Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. And Luke chapter 10 and verse 40 is where Martha asks Jesus to tell Mary to help her. So we've got a tie-up between that incident in the life of Jesus and what Paul is saying here. The significance of it is this. It refers to help that is offered to make it easier for people to bear a burden. Remember, Martha didn't think it was fair that she had all the burden of the hospitality when Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet listening. You remember? So the plea was, help me with this burden. Tell her to help me with this burden. Okay, And so here we have the same thing, that it's about bearing a burden. So here, that help, when it comes to a burden that we bring to God in prayer, that help is being provided by the Spirit himself. That help for us, when we feel that burden, is provided by the Spirit himself as he ministers both to and through believers. Now there's two ways of understanding this. Firstly, that the Spirit is so committed to us that he is personally presenting our deepest prayers to God on our behalf. So the picture is of the Spirit standing with us and praying for us. Second way of understanding it is that the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to say in prayer about a particular burden that we or others are carrying or we don't know how to express our innermost feelings. We run out of words. We can't think of the words to do it. They don't seem justice to the burden that we feel. And there are two aspects to this. Firstly, that the Spirit inspires us to speak out in tongues the appropriate words for that situation. And I'll be coming to that, back to that when we look at studies 12 and 13, when we look at what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. Mere human words, as he uses here, are not adequate to express our feelings. I'm sure we've all been in that situation. The groans that Paul speaks of here, indicate the distress we're in because of this burden. It's like our spirit is groaning and we can't get the words. So the spirit inspires us to speak out in tongues. This has happened to me on several occasions when I've been praying or ministering to folk. Run out of words to say, not sure what to say, pray in tongues over people. Secondly, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf about this burden. Now, he can do this very effectively because, as Paul says there, he, quote, searches our hearts. And that means that he knows exactly what we're thinking and he knows exactly what we're feeling. And he is able to express that to the Father on our behalf. So we have this wonderful thing when we have the Spirit of God living in us that he supports us in prayer, in those burdens that we feel. He gives us the words to speak. He enables us to overflow in tongues, in prayer, not in praise, That's completely different, because he knows what we're thinking and he helps us and he pleads for us and he expresses how we are feeling to God himself. That's just totally wonderful, as far as I can see, that the Spirit is there in that capacity in my life, in your life. And Paul completes this chapter on what it means to have God's Spirit living in us with a grand rousing finale, rejoicing in the ins- assurance that in Christ we have the victory over anything and everything that would seek to overwhelm us or to destroy us. Looking there at verses 31 to 39. Because God is in our lives through his spirit, Paul is absolutely certain this means that nothing can triumph over us, stand against us or separate us from the love of God. Because God is in our lives by his spirit. And so he says in verse 35 and 37, to 39, I have to confess, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I'm quoting Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful words. Aren't they so uplifting? Don't they do your heart good to read it? Gives me goosebumps every time I do. It's so thrilling. That nothing can separate us, no matter what we have to face in the future, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Wonderful. Moving on, thirdly, having God in our lives means that we have the armor of God at our disposal. So, if you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians 6, we have the armor of God at our disposal. But before actually looking at that subject of the armour of God, we need to notice what else Paul has to say about prayer in verse 18 of Ephesians 6. There he exhorts the Ephesians and indeed all believers to, and I quote, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, as he himself did. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Now, praying in the Spirit could well be a reference to praying in tongues. For me, it is. It certainly means allowing our prayers to be inspired by the Spirit. And this requires us to take time to listen to the Spirit, who will then guide what we say In prayer, either in our native language or in tongues. Now this verse actually comes immediately after Paul's description of the armour of God. Having God in our lives means that all believers have access to this full suit of armour, which is specifically designed for engaging in the spiritual warfare in which we are all involved Look at verse 12, well-known verse, I'm sure. Quote, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So clothed in this armour, we can fight off. We can fight off the devil and all that would come Against us. Paul refers to it as the full armour of God, which he encourages us to put on by faith in verses 11 and 13, quote, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes and be able to stand your ground. So this armour is available. And Paul is saying, for goodness sake, put it on so you can do battle. So you're clothed for battle. Now, interesting, elsewhere, he refers to the armour of God as the armour of light. In Romans 13, 12, the armour of light, which I think is a very interesting phrase. It's like the light fight against the darkness. That's how I see it anyway, the armour of light to enable us to overcome the kingdom of darkness. Now, this armour parallels the armour worn by the Roman soldier. And it consists of belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet and sword. If you look at verses 14 to 17, and you'll also see them listed in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8. For Paul, this armour of God is essential daily wear for believers so that we don't fall prey to attacks that the devil mounts against us. So what do these things signify then? Well, just briefly, because you can have sermons on this book written about it, I'm going to do it very concise. The belt of truth... Signifies the fact that if our lives are subject to the truth of God, we will defeat Satan, who is a liar, John 8:44 tells us. The breastplate of righteousness symbolizes our righteousness in Christ and the godly life we're seeking to live through the Spirit's power. We talked a lot about righteousness in the previous study. The footwear Worn by the Roman soldier was a pair of sandals with hobnails in the shoes. Did you know that? They had hobnails in their in the soles of their shoes. Do you know why? You can probably work it out. To give them a better footing when they were fighting. So they didn't slip about as they were trying to fight and slip over. So the hobnails are there to give grip, a better footing. So he talks about the feet, and I quote, the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. And this signifies the fact that believers need to be grounded in the gospel so that we can stand firm in the battle. Paul keeps emphasising about standing, standing firm. And the shoes help us to stand firm. They Represent, if you like, the gospel, the the believer being grounded in the gospel, sure of where we stand. The shield of faith represents our faith and trust in the power of God to protect us from and to deflect away what Paul describes as, and I quote, the flaming arrows. The flaming arrows that Satan would fire at us in his attempts to cause us to fall into sin. The helmet of salvation speaks of a mind, a mind which knows the truths of the word of God and will therefore not easily be led astray by the false teaching with which Satan wants to bombard us. And don't think that was a problem just in Paul's day. It certainly was. There are many, many false apostles as we've seen in previous studies. But there are those around today who misuse the word of God and people believe what they're told. Examine it. Test it. Do not be led astray. The helmet of salvation. Put that on so that you retain the truths of the word of God and not be led astray. And we move on. It says the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, which is able to pierce any heart and is able to repel any attack of Satan. Now, interesting, the, the Greek word that Paul uses for word when he talks about the word of God here is rema, not logos. He uses rhema. Rema is the now. Word of God, what God is speaking now, rather than logos, which is the Word of God, meaning the Scriptures. So it's all about the rhema, the now Word of God. So this shows that Paul's talking about the words we speak, which are given under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's the rhema. And these words enable us to communicate the message that God wants to be revealed now, to speak words of power into a particular situation now and to function effectively as his messengers right now. So what we are inspired to say now into the situations that we face by the Spirit of God. This is the rema. To do this, of course, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and willing to speak under his direction. So, thirdly, we have the armour of God when God lives in us. That is available to us. Fourthly, having God in our lives means that we have access to God. In the words of Ephesians 2 and verse 18, believers have, and I quote, access to the Father by one spirit, and can come into his presence, and I quote, "with freedom and confidence, as Ephesians 3 verse 12 puts it. And if we come into our presence, into his presence, rather, to present our petitions and requests with freedom and confidence. Now you may not realize it, but this was a sensational truth. For the Ephesian believers. This was absolutely sensational, and it's why he says it in his letter to the Ephesians and not elsewhere. (coughs) Because you see, the Ephesians lived in a city, Ephesus, obviously, where certain citizens were excluded. They were excluded from access to the agora. The agora was like a great big forum or meeting place in the city. And they were excluded from access to the Agora because of who or because of what they were. You see, in the Agora, activities relating to politics, entertainment, education, religion and commerce took place. But the marginalised were locked out. Marginalised were not allowed entry into the agora because of who and what they were. By contrast, because God is now in their lives, they have unrestricted and open access to God no matter who or what they are. So in other words, there's no agora in God's kingdom. There's no place where you're shut out of. There's no, you are not, even if you felt marginalized in this life, you're not marginalized in God's kingdom. There's no such concept. Everybody, everybody, and it probably had a bigger impact in that day because of the um, stratas of society, but everybody was welcome in God's presence. All had equal access. And this was sensational truth, a sensational truth. No matter who you are or what you are, you have access to God. And the picture Paul presents here is of the Spirit not only enabling believers to come into the very presence of God, but also presenting them to the Father, almost like taking them and said, Father, this is Ray Markham father this is put your name in that's what the spirit is doing here the greek word translated access in ephesians here is prosagoge and the person presenting an individual to someone of superior status is called a prosagogue so you've got the prosagogue introducing you to somebody of superior status. So the Spirit is the believer's prosagogue. He is your and my prosagogue. He brings us to God and presents us to him. That's the picture that Paul's using here. Now, interestingly, the usual reason for such a presentation that went on in society was so that the individual might serve their superior. So you see, the same parallel applies. Paul's pointing out that God is in our lives so that he can use us to fulfil his purposes through our service for him. And you'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Okay, so fifthly, we have God in our lives and that means that we experience God. Having God in our lives means that we experience him in many different ways. For example, knowing his strength, his comfort, his power, his peace and also his faithfulness. And through these experiences, learning more about God learning more about his wisdom, and learning more about his ways. Indeed, it's Paul's confident belief, expressed in Philippians 4.19, that he says, and I quote, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So let's unpack those things a little bit more. Look at strength and comfort, power and peace, and faithfulness. It was Paul's prayer that believers might experience God's strength in their lives. So we read in Ephesians 3.16, and I quote, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And he identified a number of reasons why this is so important for us. First of all, it's important for us to proclaim the gospel, as Paul himself had experienced when brought before the authorities, as he wrote to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 4, 17. And I quote, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it so God's spirit you see would enable believers to speak out words of truth like Paul had done and I quote from 1 Corinthians 2:13 "This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught, words. So we need God's strength to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, we need it to enable us to stand firm to the end. 1 Thessalonians 3:13 says, "May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And you'll also see some similar words in 1 Corinthians 1, Verse 8. Thirdly, to experience God's strength to produce in us the qualities we need when faced with hardship. Quoting from Colossians 1.11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. However, that's not to say that God doesn't care when we suffer hardships. 2 Corinthians 1, to 3-4 tells us, and I quote, Praise be to the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So there's a lot of comfort going around okay, from God to us and from us, out to others. Wonderful. Fourthly, we need his strength to help us to cope with all situations as Paul himself had learnt to do. Philippians 4, 12 to 13 says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all this through him who gives me Strength. Strength. There we have it again. Indeed, when Paul complained to God about what he called the thorn in my flesh, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, pleading with God three times that it might be removed from him, but to no avail, God provided him with an insight It was an insight which revolutionised Paul's thinking. And this was the insight. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, such thorns, problems or weaknesses, were not to be seen as causes for complaint. They were not to be seen as causes for complaint, but rather to be embraced. To be embraced as opportunities through which God would demonstrate his divine power. That's what Paul learnt here. And that's what we all need to learn Problems, weaknesses, thorns are opportunities to see God move in a new way in our lives, to demonstrate his divine power. And following this revelation, we see that Paul's attitude completely changed, completely changed. No more did he ask God to remove his thorn. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, he says, and I quote, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I know God's strength in miraculous ways when I find myself in places of hardship and weakness. And indeed, Paul did experience the power of God's deliverance on many occasions. For example, when he was in Asia, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. With God's power at work within us, anything is possible. So in Ephesians 3.20, he says, God is able to do immeasurably more Than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. So, having God in our lives also means that believers no longer need to worry about any problems or situations we are facing because we can bring them to God in prayer and experience His peace as a result. Philippians 4, 6-7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 15:13, we read, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So strength, comfort, power and peace. And now we come to faithfulness, experiencing God's faithfulness. Having God in our lives means we will be enriched by experiencing his faithfulness. God's brought us into a relationship with himself and he will remain committed to us at all times, even if we stray from him. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So God's promise is that he is faithful and will be faithful to us. He will faithfully watch over us and protect us from Satan's schemes, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 3 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now the believer needs to take advantage of this divine empowering and flee from the temptation to do something that is dishonouring or pleasing to God. Now the actual context of those words about God will not let you be tempted by what you can bear is interesting. The context is the eating in the temple of an idol. That's what the context is. You hear it used in all sorts of other things but this is the actual context. Eating in the temple of an idol which could tempt the Corinthians back into the city's rampant idolatry and depraved sexuality from which God had brought them out. If not, the believer may fall for that temptation, even though they think they won't. As the previous verse points out, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So there's a bit of complacency in the Corinthian church about this issue. Oh, it's not going to touch me. But Paul's saying, be very careful that you are not tempted to do that. And he uses Israel's history as a warning of what can so easily happen if you look in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 11. So God's faithfulness to us. He's faithfully with us. He will faithfully be with us even when we find ourselves tempted and drawn back into our old ways. God will enable us and strengthen us to resist that temptation as we ourselves flee from it. Now we come to a section which talks about God's wisdom, his will and his word. Paul explains that having God in our lives means that believers can draw upon his wisdom for four particular purposes. Firstly, to understand God's will for us so that we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him. Ephesians 5.17 says, Do not be foolish, but understand What the Lord's will is. Colossians 1 9 10 says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, end of quote, and also that means to live holy lives. So that's the first thing, to understand what God's will is so we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him. Secondly, we need to draw on his wisdom so that we may teach one another the word of God and correct one another when it is not being followed properly. So Colossians 3.16 says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Thirdly, so that believers would grow in love, knowledge, insight and discernment so that our lives would indeed please God. Philippians 1, 9 to 11 says, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And the fourth purpose that we need to draw on his wisdom for is so that believers may be enriched through knowing God's will and learning more about Christ through his word, having what Paul calls in Colossians 2 verse 2, quote, the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So you see, Paul's desire is that all believers should come to know Christ better which was his own burning ambition. As he says in Ephesians 1, 17, I keep asking that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Philippians 3, 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And Paul stresses to Timothy the importance of knowing God's word and continuing to learn from it. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. All scripture is God-breed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work the importance of knowing god's word and learning from it and as believers immerse themselves in the divine word of god we'll find that it changes our lives and that it allows god to work out his purposes in us and through us 1thessalonians 2:13 says when you received the word of god you accepted it not as a human word but as it actually is the word of god which is indeed at work in you who believe. So at work, changing our lives. And Philippians 2, 12 to 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fill his good purpose. So that God's purposes may be worked out in our lives. That's why we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. So that's the end of the section about what it means to have God in our lives. And now we come to the second section, main section of the study, which is our response, our response to God being in our lives. Now Paul tells us that there are various ways that believers need to respond to the fact that God is in our lives. And these include offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices, being imitators of God and wanting to please God by living holy lives. So let's first look at this idea of living sacrifices. So I'm sure you know where we're going for this. Romans 12 and verse 1. And Paul writes there, and I quote, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Because of all the truths Paul's taught them in the previous 11 chapters in Romans, Paul is saying that their only reasonable response to God's mercy is to lay themselves on the altar of sacrifice. Now you'll know uh, from that section in Romans that Paul's had quite a lot to say to do with the Jews. And here, in this verse, Paul's clearly drawing contrasts Between the old covenant sacrifices to God of animals, which were dead when laid on the altar, and the sacrifice of the believer, who is alive in Christ, when laid on the altar of sacrifice. Now the sacrifice of the believer is not a ritual demanded by law, it's a willing response to God's grace. So, that because of God's grace and mercy and love to me, I willingly lay myself on the altar of sacrifice before Him. Nor is it just about a body, it is, in fact, about the whole of what that body contains. So, in other words, it's about heart, mind, and will given over to God in obedient service to do with as he pleases and this sacrifice on our part is described as an act of worship. This is our proper response if you like to what God has done for us. Our response is to give ourselves to God in this way. Now our service is to be characterised by meekness and humility since it is God who empowers us to carry out by faith the ministries he gives us to do. So in verse 3 of Romans 12 he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So there's a meekness and a humility there that's expected of us as we serve God. But having said that, our service to God is also to be characterized by enthusiasm, to be characterized by passion. So if you look down at verse 11, he says, quote, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. And that's not easy to do, is it? To keep your zeal and spiritual fervour all the time. At least I find it difficult sometimes. But that's what our aim should be as servants of the Lord, as living sacrifices to God. And Paul goes on to say that in order to serve God properly, a process of transformation needs to take place in the minds of believers, which results in new attitudes, new values and new priorities. So no longer are we to allow ourselves to be fashioned by the ways of the world. So in verse 2 we read, and I quote, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I love the way that J.B. Phillips renders this in his translation of the New Testament. And he says this, and I'm quoting, don't let the world around you squeeze you Into its own mould, but let God remould your minds from within. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould. Let God remould your minds from within. And when we submit ourselves to this process of transformation, then we'll be able to understand what God's will is for us and what He wants from us. Carrying on in verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Only when our will is submitted to God's will can we have what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2.16 as the mind of Christ. Because only then, when our will is in line with God's will, will we think as he thinks and share his priorities and his concerns. That's the process of transformation resulting in new attitudes, new values, new priorities. Indeed, God's attitudes, values and priorities. So living sacrifices is our response to God being our lives. Also, Paul says that we need to become imitators... So, Paul tells believers to respond to the fact that God is in our lives and that we are part of his family by imitating the Lord Jesus in everything we do. So, Ephesians 5 1 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And Paul commends the Thessalonians for doing exactly this. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And Paul explains that since believers are now, quote, united with Christ, unquote, we should imitate the Lord Jesus by, quote, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Those words are from Philippians two, one to five. And in six to eight. Paul then goes on to spell out that mindset shown by Jesus as he came to earth and died on the cross. Very familiar verses, I'm sure. Namely, humility, compassion, submission, servanthood, obedience and sacrifice. These are the qualities of Christ that we should be imitating. Paul's making the point that in the way we live our lives, Believers should seek to imitate these Christ-like qualities. And you'll see all the verses in Colossians 3 and 12 and Ephesians 4 and verse 2 that say the same similar things. So being imitators of Christ is what we should be. That should be a response. Being living sacrifices, being imitators of God and thirdly, living a life that pleases God. Paul tells believers that since God is now in our lives, we should, quote, make it our goal to please him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. To, quote, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Colossians 1.10 and also 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Now a life that pleases God is Christ-centred rather than Self-centred. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And in Galatians 6 verses 4 and 8, Each one should test their own actions. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So a life that pleases God is one that is Christ-centred rather than self-centred. And the lives of believers are to be characterized by holiness. So in 2 Timothy 1.9 we read, He saved us and called us to a holy life. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we read, Therefore, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Lives to be characterised by holiness. Sin has no place in the life of a believer. Romans 6, 12 to 13, quote, Do not let sin... Reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, excuse me, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So sin has no place. Believers are to hate what is evil and Cling to what is good, he tells the Romans in chapter 12 and verse 9. And in Titus 2.12 he says, Believers are, quote, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age so that we may become, quote, instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. That's 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21. So we are to resist and say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It doesn't just happen, we have to say no. We're not to allow ourselves to have close fellowship or enter into deep relationships with unbelievers. Such relationships would include marriage and business, although the actual context of it here is that of accepting the false teaching of so-called apostles in the Corinthian church, as this would destroy their harmony, their fellowship and their unity. Now by drawing stark contrast between the believer and the ungodly person, Paul urges them not to go back to their previous idolatrous ways under the influence of these false teachers, but to live holy lives before God. So in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16, we read, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That was another word for Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Our lives, Paul says, are to be wholeheartedly devoted to doing God's will, becoming, as he writes in Philippians 2.15, and I quote, blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Paul writes that God's will for us is that we quote rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's one Thessalonians five, sixteen to eighteen. You'll also find it in one Timothy two, one to four and Romans twelve twelve. A life that pleases God is one which is, and I quote, rooted and built up in him, that's Christ, strengthened in the faith and overflowing with thankfulness. That's Colossians 2 and verse 7. A life that is based on faith in him rather than on what is immediately apparent to the human eye. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, for we live by faith, not by sight. Paul also speaks of the self-discipline that's required to live a life that is pleasing to God. Writing to the Corinthians, who would have been familiar with the Greek Olympic Games, as well as their own Isthmian Games, Paul uses a picture of a race and encourages believers to, and I quote, run in such a way that, as to get the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24 And the prize is only available for one of the runners. Therefore, every athlete, quote from verse 25, who competes in the games goes into strict training to try and win a crown that will not last. So what Paul is saying is that we need to show the same dedicated, dedicated, and fanatical degree of self-discipline in our lives in order, and I quote, to get a crown that will last forever. Verse 25. To get a crown that will last forever. The implication is that as athletes refrain from doing anything that will hamper their physical progress in their quest for the crown, so we, must be ruthless with anything that might hinder our spiritual development in our race for this crown and our quest for the crown that lasts forever and staying with the athletics symbolism paul urges believers to concentrate on the goal to concentrate on the goal just as much as the athletes do otherwise we will lose focus and fall away in the race. If we get distracted and turn to the left and to the right, often we lose our focus on Christ, we can easily fall away in the race. And so he says in verse 26, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. He has a purpose, and that purpose should be ours too. The purpose of serving God and our focus needs to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, I do not fight like a, like a boxer beating the air. And was doing something just aimlessly. He's got a life that is focused. A life focused on heavenly things is a life that is pleasing to God. And with this verse I conclude, Colossians 3, 1-2 says this, Set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's Colossians 3, 1 to 2. Set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. May God help us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Amen.